and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, I am talking to Pat O'Hara, an instructor at SNU who also teaches history at a public middle school in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Today, we'll talk about his background a bit and what life is like teaching history to dozens of terrifying middle school students. Okay, well, they're, they're really not that terrifying, but still. What is your name and what do you do? My name's Pat O'Hara, and I'm a 7th and 8th grade teacher for the Wilkes-Barre Area School District in Northeastern Pennsylvania. I teach history and social studies for them, and I'm also an adjunct instructor and team lead with SNHU and a, another online college as well. And what is your academic and professional background? I'm a 2004 graduate of uh, Penn State University. Uh, there I got a, or I earned a BS in secondary education with a focus on history and social studies. Began teaching really right upon graduation in 2004 and then earned an, a master's in history from East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania. And since 2010, I've been working as an adjunct uh, in addition to my day job as a junior high school teacher. When you are training for junior high school teacher, does that require additional certification, or did you get that as part of your BS degree? I got that as part of my BS degree. Penn State is a little bit different than a lot of, at least a lot of other Pennsylvania schools, and perhaps a, a bit different than many schools nationally, too, in that a lot of my colleagues that teach history, they actually earned a BA in history or a related field. Some of them have bachelor's in geography. I think one that I could think of as a bachelor's in geography. And then on top of that, go ahead and get their certification. Uh, with Penn State, it's a bit, I don't know if I want to call it more streamlined, but it's a bit different in that you earn a degree in secondary education, but then have a focus on history or whatever field you're looking to get certified in. Uh, so there are certification requirements there. They really lead you straight through that process, but there is uh, testing requirements that I believe most states do now, the praxis testing, where you, you have to take basic education tests uh, in addition to your content area. Uh, I'm actually certified to teach English as well because I, before I got a job, I, I was able to kind of tack on another certification to market myself a little bit better, but uh, I've never taught English, only history. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Most most historians come out of the undergrad with a BA degree, like you said. For the BS, I'm imagining that's because it's incorporating some kind of a learning sciences or something? Yes, exactly. Uh, a lot of psychology, other social sciences. Okay, that makes sense. And so what were your historical topics of interest, either while you were in school or after you left school? In my undergraduate studies, I think I feel like my topics of interest are really all over the place. Uh, even now, uh, when I'm teaching undergraduate students, I, I, I like to encourage them not to get all too bogged down into with a historical focus, at least not too early. Uh, there's always going to be things that you enjoy studying and things that you don't enjoy studying. But really, you, you never know, especially in the early phases of your education, what is really going to spark your interest until you keep reading. So as an undergrad, I, I was really all over the place. When I began work for my master's, I focused on mainly late 19th and early 20th century U.S. history, uh, in particular topics of, of organized labor, immigration issues, radicalism, 
and the way that those three topics in a lot of ways during that time period converged. My thesis dealt with the Palmer raids of 1919 and 1920 during the first Red Scare, uh, where the Justice Department, under the leadership of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, who actually, and this is just an odd aside, I, I did my master's at University of Stroudsburg, or excuse me, University of East Stroudsburg, and A. Mitchell Palmer was a Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania resident. More of an odd coincidence than anything. But anyhow, Palmer... Excuse me, Rob, now I'm getting like bogged down here in the details. <laughs> I, got a weird, I got a weird aside there. That's okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, during the Palmer raids, which my thesis dealt with, uh, Palmer arrested thousands of immigrants, accused them of being members of radical organizations such as the, the Communist Labor Party, uh, Union of Russian Workers. Uh, a lot of them were roughed up in the process of being arrested. They were denied attorneys. Uh, he planned to carry out thousands of deportations, but really only made it into the hundreds as he was really stopped by other members of Wilson's administration as, and in addition, public outcry on it. But again, as I mentioned earlier, like research interests seem to evolve. Uh, I've been teaching post-1945 U.S. history uh, many times, I mean, for many semesters here at, at SNHU uh, and elsewhere. And really that teaching experience has led me to focus more on the later half of the 20th century. Uh, still a lot of the same themes with labor history and radicalism. You know, I've been focusing on the civil rights movement and the anti-war movements and, and how radical movements have played a role in that. More recently, I've been focusing a, a bit of my reading, at least, I won't call it research, but reading on the evolving role of the presidency. You know, I, I never liked, even when I was studying for my master's, I never really enjoyed biographies as a subfield of historic literature. Uh, but I, I've been finding myself reading bios of LBJ, Nixon, Eisenhower, other more modern presidents. So you said that you had a uh, local connection to uh, Palmer back when you were working on your MA. Did that lead, w that local connection, did that lead to special local sources that you were able to access? Or did you still have to do access to like the national or art research at the National Archives, that kind of thing? You know, most of the research was more of a national scale. It did give me a little bit of access to a couple uh, hard-to-find books and, and a few other primary sources from the Monroe County Historical Society, but still most of it was, was still at, at the national level. But it did, it did make things a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I, I bet it, it It is always nice to have a local hook or a local angle to the thing mm -hmm. that you're doing. Yeah, my, my MA thesis was on uh, – I, I was – at California State University at Sacramento, and the MA thesis was on California during Reconstruction. And since Sacramento is the state capital, I was able to go to all the state archives and all that and was able to talk about stuff that was happening in Sacramento. And, you know, to somebody that lives outside of Sacramento, it doesn't really make much difference. But to people in Sacramento, it's like, yeah, you know, there's kind of an inside thing here. Like, hey, I know where that building is, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And that was even when I was looking at the Palmer Raids, where I'm from in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, too. Uh, even though it wasn't one of the main national centers where lots and lots of people were, were rounded up, there there were still federal raids that went on in Wilkesbury. So just even being able to go and find the location of an old hotel that was once used as a meeting place for the Communist Labor Party and that was raided and shut down during the raids, and uh, a couple other houses in the more the parts of the city that were home to a lot of industrial workers, really kind of interesting to see. And it does, even though it, it wouldn't be the basis of my research, it, it was still a way to develop more of a individualized connection with it.
so shifting gears a little bit, how did you end up in your current teaching position? You mentioned that you got the credential as part of your BS degree. What is the actual process for applying and then becoming a middle school teacher? Really, the, in, in Pennsylvania, which is where I put in most of my applications, I, I mean, I did some other applications regionally, uh, the process is pretty standard where you just need to submit a application with all of your supporting credentials, such as transcripts and uh, cert- copies of your certification and that type of thing. I, I look at it as really the part of the law of numbers here. I, I put in, I'd have no way of even fathoming how many applications I put in regionally. It actually ended up that I, I got a job in the city that I was from. Uh, I actually got a teaching job in Virginia, or an offer at least in Virginia, that I was about to take. And then I got the call from the other school district a couple weeks before before school started, and that was about 13 years ago. Getting a, a teaching job could be difficult because a, a lot of factors come into play especially I work at a public school so there's always the economic realities about how many teachers they could afford to have on staff in an ideal world you know there'd be lots of teachers with small classrooms but as it's a public school that draws on tax money uh, obviously that's going to be a concern so there's economic factors in how many teaching opportunities are in a given area and I was lucky enough that I was applying for a job right around the same time that there's a number of history teachers retiring, so it kind of worked out. Yeah, that's the uh, that's always the, the hope, is that you'll be on the market just as there's a large group of people retiring. I know that, especially for tenure-track jobs, there was always a, a hope that there's a big wave of retirements coming, which is going to provide employment opportunities for a lot of uh, you know unemployed PhDs and all, and all that. Never seems to happen at the college level, but it's good to hear that it mm-hmm. happens sometimes, at least at the, <laughs> at the grade school level. Absolutely. Now, when you are looking for a job in, in, a, uh, in a public school, is there like a centralized database of job listings or is it just a matter of doing like Google searches? How do you f- actually find the, the listings? Really looking at the listings as they're posted by individual school districts is probably the best way to go uh, if you're looking for school districts regionally. I recall there being a database that I used when I was first looking for a teaching job. And again, this was about 13 years ago. But the database that I use, and I'm not even sure if it's still in existence, I'm sure there must be similar ones around. It seemed to only have job listings in places that were very, very high demand areas, mainly in the South and in more urban environments. Uh, So my advice there would just be to if you know a region that you want to look at, survey what school districts are around there and then touch base with those school districts in particular. The other thing that I would always advise too is apply even if there's not a job opening. Uh, A lot of schools will have people that retire, uh, but they won't retire until just about the start of the the following school year. So even if you're looking for a job teaching history or, or whatever and you put in an application, even if there's not a job opportunity, that job opportunity might pop up and then your application's already there. How would you describe a typical day as a middle school history teacher? Uh, well, Rob, you know, as it's August right now, the time, this time of the year is kind of laid back for me since the kids are in summer break. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I get to focus True. my attention on uh, being a adjunct faculty member, but you know, September is when things really get fun, so that's right around the corner. My day starts... A little bit before 8 a.m., uh, the, the kids get their 
between 7.50 and 8. I had to be there by 7.50. And 8 o'clock is really when instruction starts. So at 8 o'clock, I, I agreed a room full of around 20 uh, to 25 13 and 14 year olds. Uh, the way my school operates uh, is that instruction starts pretty much right away. So since the first period class begins at eight, I begin teaching right at eight. So usually when I talk to new teachers, I, I always encourage them to show up a, a little bit early each day, just so they have time to catch their breath, grab a coffee, collect their thoughts, uh, you know, turn on your computer, even things like that before you have to be on. Because I mean, once it's eight o'clock, it, it's go time. And seventh and eighth graders don't necessarily do all that well with having downtime. You know, the showing up early, I need to take my advice, I think, a little bit more often regarding that, uh, just to get a, get a breather. Uh, throughout the day, though, I teach six classes, uh, all of them, again, around 20 to 25 students. Uh, there's four eighth grade classes, two seventh grade classes. Uh, about midway through the day, I get a, a preparation period that's 45 minutes long. Uh, my word to the wise with that is you'll never get all of your preparation done in 45 minutes. That's just an unreasonable expectation. I mean, 45 minutes goes by really fast, and one or two phone calls to your classroom could take up most of that. You know, once I'm done with school, that's where I switch to online mode for a few hours and, and do the adjunct thing where I'm participating in discussion boards uh, for undergrad courses, grading papers, respond to the emails, all that sort of stuff. Oh, and at that time, too, is when you get a lot of the prep work done for my day job because, again, that 45 minutes just not enough, and you have to find a teacher that doesn't get some of that done outside of normal work hours. Yeah, I've always wondered about them, even when, even when I was in high school, and I, I knew that teachers get, you know, they get a period off or whatever, and but at the same time, if you've got six classes full of 20 to 25 students, you're talking, what, 120 to 150 students total, and yes. you're supposed to be grading assignments and creating lectures and group projects or whatever the case may be, it just seems like there's no way that that would be anywhere near adequate <laughs> for performing exactly. any of those, those types of activities. So it makes perfect sense. You'd have to take it home. And I guess that's one of the things that people – is probably one of the large misconceptions about teachers is, you know, oh, they only work six hours a day and they get summers off. But the reality, of course, is very different because there's a lot of stuff going on in that off time that you didn't get done during the regular day. After years of – I've been doing this for 13 years now. So after years of doing it, you do end up getting – finding ways to get more done during the school year. Uh, you know, the, the, the first couple years are the hardest because that's when you're building – that's where you're really figuring out how to teach. You're, you're building your lessons, you're creating assignments, and so on. And, of course, you're going to be doing that year after year as you tweak things. But if you're teaching the same subjects year after year, you could at least build a framework in which you could build off of during subsequent years. And, you know, right now, however, it, it's almost like going back to square one for me because we, we my school is lucky enough to get a lot of new technology, uh, things that I – was trained to teach with back when I was at Penn State, but never had until a year or so ago in reality. Things like uh, laptop carts with Chromebooks for each student, uh, interactive whiteboards, and incorporating that new technology into the curriculum really reinvented the way that I teach. Uh, so it's kind of like going back to year one and now building lessons that instead of 
just traditional lecture style instruction, incorporate uh, students working in, in more group settings using the technology that we have available. And, and it's all good things. But then again, it does make for more time spent at home prepping, planning, grading, etc. Man, junior high has changed so much since my day. I, mean, I oh, was, yeah. I was in junior high. I was learning how to type on an Apple II. <laughs> the idea that everyone has a Chromebook and all that—that's just amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. I agree. Since there's presumably, I mean, there's other students in the either the undergrad program or even the MA program at SNHU and elsewhere that are looking and interesting or interested in going into teaching at the grade school level. Do you have any advice or suggestions for those folks that are looking to break into that career? Sure. You know, my main advice is, is really to be flexible. Uh, you might not always find the exact teaching job that you're looking for immediately. Uh, for instance, you might want to teach AP U.S. history to uh, high school seniors, but you know, so do a lot of people, and chances are that a school district is going to give that assignment to somebody that's been there for, for years. Uh, I'm not saying that a person looking to go into teaching should take a job that's completely opposite of what they're looking to do, but there is some merit to, to getting your foot in the door. So maybe instead of teaching AP history, you find that you're teaching history or civics to freshmen or eighth graders. And who knows, a couple of years in, the more ideal job might open up or even better yet, and I think this is kind of what happened in my case, you might find that you like teaching uh, to students of that level and that that's something that you end up really enjoying. The other bit of advice, I think, is just that there's always room for good teachers. Uh, if you love the field that you're studying in and you want to share your pass passion for history or for any other field uh, with young people, and then it turns out to be a great job. Actually, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I have a refrigerator magnet that my mom got me that a year or so ago that said June, that says June, July, and August, the top three reasons for being a teacher. Uh, having some downtime during the <laughs> summer months, it's good. And, you know, I, I, I know teachers that would probably swear by that. Yeah. Uh, and and there is some truth to it because, honestly, I mean, having some downtime during the summer months, it's uh, a much welcome break. Uh, but aside from that, it's not necessarily too accurate because the best parts go, you know, a little bit deeper than that. You know, to me, it's when you realize that you've sparked the interest in some of the kids that you're teaching. And a lot of times you won't even know that that's happening. Uh, I can remember a parent at a parent teacher conf conference told me that her son, when her son would come home, he wouldn't stop talking about what he was learning in history class each day. And I looked at her and I'm, I'm, I'm like, Really? And the reason why I'm surprised is because this is a kid that just sits in class, doesn't say a word, sits there with just a grumpy look on his face. And then, you know, when I chatted with him outside of cl the classroom, you, you found out that, that he was, even though he didn't look it, he was really engaged. He just wasn't the type of kid that wants to stand out in class. I mean, I'm dealing with 13 and 14-year-olds after all. Right. So my point is really that teaching is a profession for those who have the energy and desire to really try to encourage that type of engagement and to try to find those types of moments. And I, th I think it's really that way that, you know, you go in with that philosophy, then you end up earning the, the summer break. I certainly agree that uh, teachers deserve that summer break. I, I completely uh, understand. 
even though I'm not in that career track, I, I always get irritated when I see people like online comment boards or something griping about how teachers are overpaid because they get paid for 12 months but only work for nine months. And it's like, just go do it for a year and you'll understand. <laughs> There's, and I'm, I'm sure you more. Yeah, I bet. And I'm sure you've probably encountered this too. And but one of the things that I've always encountered, like when I was in grad school and all that, when people would talk about teaching at the grade school level, of course the 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 least popular grades were the middle school grades because everyone is terrified of like 13, 14 year old kids because that's because of the they you know can the be scary the stereotype <laughs> that they're monsters at that age or whatever. And so, how do you think that has made you teach differently, or has that made you teach differently with teaching to that age group? Absolutely. It's such a transitional age group. You know, in seventh and eighth grade, you have some kids that you'd be able to take them and drop them off in, in high school and they'd fit right in. But then you have other kids in, in seventh and eighth grade that you'd be able to take them and drop them off in, you know, way down in elementary school, third or fourth grade. And maturity wise, they'd fit right in. Uh, so it, it's really trying to find ways to address those differences uh, within students in, in order to try to you know, reach as many kids in the classroom as you could. It's also, I think, the recognition that growing up for, I think, any kid, those are rather tough years. They're not necessarily, I mean, a lot of times I think as teachers, we could look at kids that age and think, oh, wow, they they don't know how easy they have it. A lot of that's true because they don't know how easy they have it. But the other way, it's a tough time because they're, they're still really in a very dramatic part of their lives growing up. And trying to even just figure out who the heck they are. And by recognizing that and recognizing the differences of it, I, I think really helps one kind of shape the way that they teach a room of kids. And every class is different as well, too. I mean, you could have a class first period and then the same, you know, another, another group of 25 kids of the same age group walk in second period, and you're going to find yourself presenting different lessons to the different students there just because of the, the various group dynamics. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's I, I think that what you were just saying about how the fact that, you know, that's a transitional time of every kid's life and that's when every kid is trying to find themselves. And of course, I think every adult remembers those years as being especially tumultuous, which is probably why we all like a lot of people shy away from trying, trying to even think about teaching those years because they think back on their own experiences and how gloomy or how weird the world was at that point and can't imagine trying to deal with students at, at, at that age group. But yeah, it makes sense that you find ways to adapt and you find every teacher, no matter what, whether it's grade school, high school, and even college, you still have to tailor your teaching style to your students. I mean, that happens everywhere. I mean, even at SNHU, we have such a broad, diverse student population that there really Absolutely. is no one one style fits all. We have we constantly find ourselves adapting teaching styles and all of that. And so I imagine mm-hmm. it's probably the same type of thing happening for and you. And that's too. true. And with SNHU and teaching online, I mean, you have people in all different phases of their life. You have students who are the 18, 19, year old I hate to use the term traditional but traditional Mm -hmm. uh, college student you know just age differences alone could range from that age group up into people who are long retired and are just taking courses for self-enrichment add in the geographical differences and cultural differences you do you find yourself teaching to the group that you have 
uh, and recognizing those differences is one of the, I think, the most important parts of education. Yeah, and I think that's one of the parts that a lot of people don't recognize. They don't actually do it. They just think that we all get up and do the same lectures that we've been doing for years, year after year after year, when in reality, no, we're constantly kind of shifting our styles and presentation methods and even the content to accommodate specific audiences. Absolutely. So just to wrap up, do you have any specific history-related recommendations, like a, a particularly good book or artifact or a museum or something that you've, that you've encountered recently? You know what? To me, it's just be flexible. Uh, keep, on, keep on reading. You know, I, I travel a lot, too, and I find myself taking in historic sites everywhere that I go, kind of far away. But I think the best one I saw recently was in London, was the Imperial War M- Museum and specifically the uh, World War One exhibit at the War Museum. It's a pretty new exhibit. I think they, I was there two years ago. Ended up not seeing about half of the rest of the museum because they spent so much time just in that one exhibit. Yeah, I, I bet that Imperial War Museum exhibit would be amazing. I'd, I'd oh, love yeah, it's to fantastic. see that. I, I, I need to get to London somehow, some way. I need to get to London. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for joining us today. No, no problem, Rob. And thank you to the rest of you for listening today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.